Okay, Isaiah 44, Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, I spent more time on that than I thought, so I might not reach my goal today, but we're going to go through anyway. Isaiah 44 is about contracts, okay? Isaiah 44 is about a contract. In fact, the entire chapter is, uh, the, the chapter from 1 through 20 is itself a contract, okay? Now, if you look in chapter 43, we see the first contract. We covered this last week. If you look back at 43, at verse 22, it says, Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me sheep for your burnt offerings, and so on and so forth. Now I'll go to chapter 44, and we see God's response of faithfulness to Israel's unfaithfulness. Okay? Then we have another contrast in verses 6 through 8, and then 9 through 20. Here's the contrast of 6 through 8. Look at it, it says right here, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come or what will happen. He says, can you tell the future? No, there's no other God besides me. And there's this shocking exclusivity of God. Now, this is part of the contrast. Because God is one, and God is alone, and God is exclusive, and God is only God, you have that very simply stated. Besides me, there is no God. I'm the first and the last. There is no Redeemer. There is no rock. There is none. Besides me, just one. Very simple. Simply stated, briefly stated. Now, move your eyes forward to verses 9 through 20. And the contrast there is between the one and exclusive, the only God, and the idols that people make. And even in the volume of words, there is a contrast. There's a big contrast. How many of you have ever have thought to yourself, I'd like to learn a little bit more about the Greek pantheon? And so you go to Wikipedia and you type Greek pantheon. Okay? You ever, anybody ever done that? I'm the only nerd that's done that. Well, <laughs> if you ever want to do that, you will be very quickly overwhelmed by the nearly infinite numbers of stories and legends and tales and contradictions. This is true of all pagan mystery religions, is the amount of words that comes flowing from that, imaginations and so forth. Here you have, and, and this is, in a sense, what God is getting at. Very simply stated, I'm the only God. And then he contrasts that with gods that people make. Okay? So what I'd like to do, now that we have that contrast in mind, I'd like to read these verses, and then we'll work through these verses a little bit. Uh, we'll work through them uh, as we go forward. Very quickly, for those of you who are visiting with us today, let's just remember where we're at in history, okay? And be a good review for us too, okay? 
Israel, or Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, has a good king. His name is Hezekiah. Hezekiah's children are not going to follow the Lord. While Hezekiah is king, there's a nation that threatens Judah, and it's the nation Assyria. And through the whole first half of Isaiah, God is assuring Judah, don't be afraid of Assyria. I'm going to judge you. 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 And everybody in Judah thinks, well, it must be Assyria that's going to judge you. And God says, no, it's not Assyria. Don't be afraid of them. However, there is coming a judgment in about 100 years. And that judge, the tool I'm going to use to judge you, is the nation Babylon. And suddenly this judgment has a name on it. But then, beginning in chapter 40, God says, I don't want you to be afraid of that judgment. Because it's my instrument. And I not only have ordained how far they can take it, I've actually ordained a person who's going to deliver you from that judgment. Now, I've told you that so far, God has not named that person yet. He's been anonymous. Don't look ahead. The name comes in 44. He's been sort of building this up, building it up. All of you looked. Okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll let the cat out of the bag. Look down at 44. Look at the very end, chapter 27. Verse 27. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be rebuilt, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So finally, the identity of this near redeemer is revealed. But God hasn't quite gotten there yet. It's still anonymous. Well, God is saying, look, I'm filling you in on the future. And because I'm filling you in on the future, you should trust me now. That's the idea. Stop trusting your idols. Trust me. You would say, how do I know you're trustworthy? And God would say, I'm going to give you very specific predictions of the future. And if they don't come true, don't trust me. But when they come true, you better worship me. And that's sort of the logic. Does that make sense, everybody? And so God is in the middle of calling them to worship him and him alone. So let's pick up our reading in verse 40, chapter 44, verse 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I've chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. And he's talking about when the people will be delivered. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows flowing by the streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call him the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hands, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Let's stop there. God says, right now, 
you guys are going to be judged. Do you remember the descriptions he used back in chapter 43? He says, you've burdened me with your sins, but I'm going to dry everything up. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to judge you with wild beasts. Everything is going to be um, withered. Everything is going to be profaned. But that's not going to last forever. When my Redeemer comes, I'm going to pour out my Spirit on you. You will flourish as grass in a fertile field. Look at verse 4. He says, they shall spring up among the grass. Also, like willows by flowing streams. This is something we can actually understand here in our valley. What are the biggest trees in our valley? What are the biggest trees? The fastest growing trees. Anybody ever noticed? The willows. <laughs> Just You can almost follow the farmer's irrigation ditches all over the valley because what springs up next to them but these big flowing willow trees. In fact, the farmers find them to be annoying and they have to cut them down and trim them up so that their ditches will run. The willows grow so fast and so full, full of water. And it's, it's glorious to watch these willows spring up. And God says, that's what you're going to be. You're going to be these huge, fast-growing willows in what was previously a dry land. He says that your people aren't going to be ashamed anymore of calling on me. Look at verse 5. This one shall say, I am the Lord's, and another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. The Isaiah here is using these another and another and another. No longer are you going to be um, humiliated to be associated with this nation. No longer are you going to hide your identity from people. Do you remember the book of Esther? Esther was instructed as an act of righteousness by Mordecai to hide her identity from the king. And God says, when I turn this around, you will have no more of that fear. You'll have no more of that shame. You'll call upon me publicly to all, and you'll call to one another saying, I am the Lord's, and that person will respond, yes, I am the Lord's as well. We understand this a bit in our culture. There's such a, a pushback in our secular nation that from a very moralistic perspective pushes Christians back and pushes them down to where born-again Christians in this country feel they can't express their faith anywhere without getting violent, retributive pushback. No more will that be the case when God takes over a land. That's what he's promising here. Now, how is he going to do that? Why, why is he going to do that? Let's look at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. 
Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. This section of scripture is one of the pinnacle statements of monotheism in all the Bible. Sometimes we get the impression that there's a pantheon of gods out there, but our God is superior to them all. And what God is saying right here is, blank that out of your minds. Every other member of that imaginary pantheon is just that. It's an imagination. It doesn't exist. It's not there. I'm the only one who is there. I was first, and I am last. God did not become God. God has only ever been God. Nobody else or nothing else gets to be God. Only God gets to be God. Now, religions the world over, time immemorial, have promised that you can become God. It doesn't matter the false religion. False religions the world over have done this. When did that happen for the very first time? Somebody please tell me. Who talks like that? The serpent in the garden. Go back to Genesis 3. Let's review that. What did the serpent say to the woman? What did he say? You'll become like God. Or you'll become as God. You'll become a God. You'll, you'll flourish. And God is holding this knowledge back from you because he's, he's sinfully jealous and he wants to keep all the glory for himself. Well, later in the book of Ezekiel, we find a God, we find Lucifer talking again. And what does he say? He says, I will ascend to be like the Most High. I will ascend to be like the Most High. So when people start saying, I can become a God, who are they talking like? They're talking like their father, the devil, aren't they? Because that's how the devil talks. God says it this way, very simply, very simply. I'm the Lord. And there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Everything else is a figment of the imagination. And again, is God asking you, and this is a criticism of Christianity that's not true, is God asking you to take a blind leap of faith onto a hope, an empty hope, a vain hope, that God is who he says he is. No. God is not asking you to suspend your reason. He's not asking you to turn your brain off. He says, don't be afraid. Have I not told you from of old? 
and declared it? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. I've told you these things about the future. Babylon's going to take you away. Cyrus is going to bring you back. A virgin will conceive, and you will call his name Emmanuel. Psalm 16.10. I will not allow his body to see decay. He will rise from the dead. Okay. There's one coming in Genesis 3. The serpent will bruise his heel, but he'll crush the serpent's head, a seed of the woman. Okay. All these prophecies coming true to the letter to give you great confidence that the God who says he's the only one really is the only one. Now, here's the contrast, okay? Look at the last phrase of verse 8. There is no rock. Okay, rock. Now, this is an issue of perspective. Somebody, I want everybody right now to get a picture in their mind of rock and show me with a hand motion just what first comes to your mind when you think rock. Something like this, something like this, something like this. Something like this. Give me a hand motion. Okay, everybody. Ready? Show me your rock. Okay. We're, look, we're, look, some people are like this. Some people are like this. Some people are like this. Okay. Let me tell you what this rock, word rock means. Does everybody see that we, we're all kind of all over the place on what a rock is? Okay. Walk up to the side of the mountain and look. Here, here's actually a really good example. You know when you drive down the canyon and you see the people rappelling down that face, climbing up that one face. You know what I'm talking about? That's one big rock. It's a giant rock that people can climb up and down. It's one piece. That's this word. It's not going anywhere. You can trust your life to it. It is there. It is sturdy. It's there. It's certain. It ain't moving. Big, huge, massive. That's the idea. Okay. Now remember, this is a psalm. This is a, not a psalm. This is words of contrast. Now let's go and see what the contrast is. Okay. All who fashion idols are what? Nothing. Do you see the contrast? I'm the God. There is, I'm God. There is no other. This is all the rest of the up. The, this is all the rest of the imagination. Okay? These things they delight in and do no profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. I've told you the future. What did the makers of these idols do? They don't. They make guesses. Or at, at best, they'll come up with something vague that can be interpreted seven different ways this side of Tuesday. That doesn't actually tell you anything real about the future. Okay? Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. And the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. 
He shapes it into the feature of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree, or an oak that lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, and he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half of it he eats meat and roasts and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm, I've seen the fire. Now, verse 17 is actually a special word. It says, and the rest of it. Now, I like, to, I like as a hobby to do some woodworking. One thing that you collect lots and lots of, if you're going to do that, are little offcuts. And they're totally insignificant little scraps of wood that you can't turn into anything. We call them offcuts. What do I do with my offcuts? I give them to the kids, and they turn them into little toys. Or I use them as fire starters in the winter for our firewood. That's the word here, the offcuts. Okay? These little insignificant scraps of wood. You know what the, this guy does with them? With the offcuts, he makes it into his god. He makes it into his idol and falls down and worship it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you're my God. They don't know, nor do they discern. This is the idol. He has shut his eyes so that they can't see in their hearts so that they cannot understand. The craftsman, verse 19, he doesn't think about this. He doesn't see the irony of it. Nor is, it, nor is there any knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat in the oven. And I shall make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. His deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Do you see the contrast? Let's just note several of the contrasts very quickly. Okay. God has no beginning, no end. There is no other. The idol exists because of people. There's a man who makes the idol. In one case, you've got a God who makes man and a God who exists independently and apart from man. And in the other case, you've got an idol that a man makes. So who's serving whom? Who's serving whom? The idol's serving the man, isn't it? People make false gods because they want that God to serve them. How about this? With God, he is unlike anything we can possibly imagine. He, he, he's not, he doesn't have a paradigm. He tells us things about himself because we wouldn't understand him otherwise. But he's altogether different than anything we can imagine. What do idols look like? They look like man, made by man for man, to live in a house. Or how about this? Here you've got this immovable, indestructible rock. He doesn't move. He doesn't change. He's always there. The craftsman, on the other hand, he builds his idol. What does he do? He is hungry. He gets cold. So he has to eat again. He has to burn fire again. And then he gets hungry, and then he gets cold. And he has to do it again. 
Does that idol offer any lasting satisfaction? Here's another one. Another. The God, God is a rock. He is a fortress. He is a strong tower. He doesn't move. You can put your life on him. Look at the last. It says that they eat ashes. It says he feeds, verse 20, on ashes. Do you guys know what ashes were used for in the ancient world, why a person would eat them? They still eat them today. People eat them today for the same reason. Anybody know? How many have ever eaten Tums? An antacid. If you can eat ashes, then they'll do the same thing. They're, uh, they, they settle your stomach when you're having anxiety and nerves. And what this is symbolizing is a person who's always on edge, who's always unsure, who's always uncertain. And they have to eat ashes all the time to deal with their nervous ulcers. Whereas people who rely on God have a rock that doesn't move. Do you see the contrasts? We could go on and on. We could go on and on for more. But that's all we have time for. Okay? So let's pray. And we'll continue our journey through next week. Father, give us grace to see you as the great and only and exclusive God. May we remember that you alone are God and derive all the comfort and hope that we can possibly have from that knowledge. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.